Well, okay, July the 29th, <clears throat> lesson 34, and <clears throat> we'll finish up this morning, I trust, our study on the Beatitudes. And we started last week in verse 10 of chapter 5, looking at this, this last Beatitude, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we spent all of our time last week on this one verse and decided we would just pick up this morning and try to finish up with verses 11 and 12 and finish this passage of Scripture this morning. came across a statistic as I was uh, studying from the, from the book Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I had a little bit of a statistic in there about the number of Christians who had been killed over the years. Of course, this is an estimate, but it is a recent estimate, and they say it suggests that 70 million Christians were martyred in the first two centuries of church history. 70 million Christians. A large, large number. And they added that of these, that there was some 45 million, or two-thirds of those, uh, that occurred between 1900 and 2000. So what that means is that really more than what with two-thirds, that's more, more in the 20th century than previous centuries combined. Wow. And we shed some light uh, last week on the fact that sometimes we're just, we seem to be kind of detached from this reality because here in this country where the persecution such as it is takes a little different uh, little different road. It's not that we're all, you know, in danger of losing our life or necessarily losing our livelihood every week. Uh, but in many cases, uh, uh, or in most cases, we could say throughout the world, this is the case. The consequences are so much more severe. So we stop and we think about those, and it's a reminder that, you know, we don't know how far away we are in this country from a more severe persecution. There are levels of persecution that we discovered last week as we talked that we experienced in the workplace, you know, and even in our families and so forth. Um, we're reminded that the country just north of us, in North America here, Canada, uh, would consider some of the things that we talk about here in church. If we talk about homosexuality from a scriptural reference or many of these things, that's considered hate speech in their country. It's a violation of the law. That's just, just above us here. So we know that you know, people see it differently throughout. And uh, who knows what's going to happen. As I see things, I don't like, I'm not getting into politics in our Sunday, but as you see things changing and the way people think, you know, in general, groups of people, and I'm thinking people right now, 25 to 35 right now, regarding human rights and so on and so forth, um, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. It can't be good if it keeps continuing just now. That is just to say that the persecution will increase for Christians. It will increase. Uh, so we should be ready for that. And we covered last week a number of scriptures that tell us plainly from the mouth of Peter and the Apostle Paul and Christ himself that we will be exposed to, we will experience persecution. So that moves us up to verse 11 in chapter 5 of Matthew here, 
which reads, Blessed are you. Now, he's just going to continue on after talking from verse 10 about the fact of, of persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. And then the key phrase here, because of me, he says, because of me. I'm sure we can bring persecution upon ourselves for the wrong reasons. But here Christ is talking specifically about persecution that comes because of him. Back in verse 10, when I <coughs> read that verse, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you know, he said, that Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's going to happen, we discovered last week. It's going to happen. You cannot bypass, not if you live for Christ, you can. All who would live godly in Christ Jesus, he said, will suffer persecution. And it's because of this, for the sake of righteousness, he says, because our lives have been changed, because we are different when compared to the world. And you can, you can look at the, the way, uh, you know, the world's thoughts and, and beliefs and, and politics and all that is changing now uh, to hold a clear Christian line of commitment to be, to be solid in the Word of God uh, regarding a number of world issues and uh, uh, cultural issues that are out there in our uh, country right now pits us against the world's philosophy and so forth. That's where we are. And we've always been there, but it seems to be more prevalent now. And it seems to be uh, couched in a way where people seem more, uh, I don't know, they, they, uh, authorized in, in uh, pointing out uh, the, the falsity of Christian belief. You see, it, you see it on the news now. People feel empowered to do that. And that's uh, a bit of a discouragement to me. It kind of gets my attention when I see things happening. When I see people who normally, even in their political views, would take, would take the, a non-violent view about expressing their political opinion, now feel justified in expressing it in a violent way. Do you know what I'm talking about? You've seen it on college campuses. I know back uh, during the election, uh, they, they highlighted Berkeley once again with the there, you know, an area that, uh, that was known for really for just the talking and catharsis, as they would say, and meeting and discussing things for the sake of getting to the right. No, now they seem to feel justified in some sort of violent approach to get their message out. This is, the, this is disturbing. Uh, you see politicians telling people to go and harass people who take a particular point of view and so forth, knowing full well that the potential of that leading to some sort of violent outbreak is much, much greater. So when that's coming from your leaders, you know, and from your colleges and so forth, and those are just small examples, we have to say something has come over our world, you know, in a more graphic way, and there's no telling what we will see in the future. But to be sure, the language that's used here in verse 11, when he says, because of me, he's talking about, quite simply, that our righteousness is simply and always will be a reflection of Jesus Christ. To put it another way, the more we live for Christ, which is what we're supposed to do, the more Christ becomes our all in all in everything that we do, 
You know, he becomes the, the test, if you will, the filter, the litmus test for making decisions and for our priorities and the way that we live our life. The more that happens, the more it puts us in the limelight about what we believe and pits us against the uh, wisdom, if you will, of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. I might have shared this in closing last week, but we'll pick up with this again. Paul says, for I think, Paul talking, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to the angels and to men. He's just saying we're known all over because of what we believe and how we stand for it, even to, to the death. History would point that out as they talk about how Christians would stand and not fight and stand in the name of Christ and, and refuse to back down on what they believe or to, to claim some allegiance to, to the Pharaoh, or not the Pharaoh, but the emperor. <laughs> they wouldn't do that. They just stood there in their faith. And they were giving. They gave to people who didn't have when they didn't have anything to give to speak of. They continued to share what they had because their lives had been changed. These are the people, Christians, these are who truly believe in love and the power of love, but not at the expense, if you will, of the truth. Love, but not at the expense of telling people the truth about their life and so forth. So that's part of who we are. And he says here plainly, he uses the word when, blessed are you when, and you might, not, you might think this word is maybe insignificant, <clears throat> but the Greek word here refers to uh, persecution in this context. It's persecution that is sure to come. Once again, they make that point. Jesus spoke of a time, he said, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, <clears throat> and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will be betrayed one, uh, betray one another, and hate one another. This is part of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 that we'll get to later. And he's talking about a time in the future. But we know this happens throughout and has happened throughout many times, many times. It's a reference back to Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 17, where again he says, be, <clears throat> But beware of men. For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, once again, for the sake of Christ, for my sake, he says, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And Christ is telling us this is what's going to happen. And we know historically that there were persecutions, that the persecutions increased greatly as the emperors of, of Rome changed out and Nero was there in the time of Paul and then later on, even in the 4th century, uh, it began to, uh, began to taper off. But there was great, great persecution. And that's what we as a people, as a Christian people, have to look forward to. It's not like it happened then in that time in history and it won't happen again because, again, in the Olivet Discourse there, he talks about a time to come. And think of it. When somebody kills you, they think they do God a service. Right. It's that same old mindset that we talk about. Back with Paul, when 40 people vowed that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul. It's that kind of 
mentality. And the thing about it that's so shocking is that these people will think they are right. They think they are right. Many of them think that they are religious in their actions. So we trust the Holy Spirit of God to change people's hearts. And he uses a word here, <coughs> excuse me, that's translated insult. And the Greek word carries the idea of reviling something, just just going after it in a very aggravated kind of way, an upbraiding or seriously insulting. It's like without restraint, like no holes barred in a person's insult toward us. And what it literally means in the language of the day, it means to cast in one's teeth, which gives the picture of throwing out words out of your, out of your mouth in a very uh, reckless kind of way. I think the word to me, and it wasn't used, but the word vitriolic came, came to mind, which means a person who's just filled with all kinds of bitter criticism and malice. It's like an unrestrained upbraiding of someone. This is the word that's used. This is the word that, that Christ used. He says, it's going to be tough. You know, it's going to be hate-filled speech is what it is. And he experienced that. And it's been experienced by Christians many times over since the years. He says they will persecute you. And, of course, that word is the same word that's been defined earlier in our study, which can mean to drive away someone because you're repulsed at them or have considered them as if they are dead, to drive them away. Or at the same time, it can mean to pursue someone, to pursue them for the purpose of berating them, for the purpose of finding something negative about them that can be broadcast. That's the nature of the words that Christ used here. That's pretty, pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? And we'll be or always have the potential of being subjected to that kind of thing. No holes barred. No holes barred in the way that Christians are talked about or held up. And he says they're going to falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now, this is a definite uh, reflection on somebody talking about you behind your back. That would be the context. That there's always something going on in the background about you. Or that your actions, uh, your stand for Christ is being um, you know, evaluated by others. And they're looking for you know, something to hold against you or something that they can char- that will serve to help them characterize you as whatever, silly or over-religious or holier than thou or just pick something, just anything that's demeaning. So that's what's going on in that phrase. And I can imagine as, as you know, Christ was talking about that and saying that, people, you know, beginning to take, uh, take a step back, <laughs> you know, and see. It's much like what we see in what is it, John uh, chapter 6, when he's talking. And he says, when he got through there, that they said, you know, a lot of the people just turn and say, eh, we're not following this guy anymore. This could be costly. All right? It could be very costly. And it will be costly. It will be costly. Jesus himself was referred to as a glutton and a drunkard. They often referred to him that way. They called him, as you know, a, a friend of sinners, a friend of tax collectors, which would have been, as you also know, a a hated and despised individual. 
you know, a publicani, a person who was of Hebrew descent but was collecting taxes for the Roman government, a hated and despised person, considered a traitor amongst, amongst traitors. And he was accused in that fashion. He would say many times later, look, if they did this to me, they're going to do this to you. They're going to do this to you. He was despised this, and he was forsaken by men. And of course, you know the context. Isaiah is looking way ahead, hundreds of years. But the Spirit of God is laid upon his heart to talk about the person of Christ, his persona, a man of acquainted with grief, and like one who has their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. We often think, of, and rightly so, this is uh, uh, from 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verse 3, but it focuses on the person of Christ as he was viewed by those around him. And it's a reminder, as I said, they will look upon us one day in the same way. Again in verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, verse 7 of Isaiah 53. Pressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb uh, that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it sh- He did not open his mouth. And then in verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So Christ is our example. Paul would talk to believers and he would remind them in their persecution and in their difficulties, he, he would make this statement. he said, say, you know, but right now you have not been in a situation where you have resisted unto death. That was the standard. You may be persecuted right now, but you haven't been persecuted to the point of death. And the implication is as Christ was. We don't think like that nowadays in our, in our daily walk and the things that we encounter every day, or if somebody disses us because we take a particular uh, Christian stance on an issue, you know, we refuse to go to a party or do this kind of thing or whatever, Uh, but it was much more serious for people in that day, much more serious. And we do this, and Christians throughout have submitted themselves to the Word of God to live as Christ uh, has directed for them to live, for us to live, because of Him, always because of Him. Not because of us as individuals, not because of our religious affiliation, not because of our particular church family and so forth, in particular, even though that is important, but first and foremost because of Christ, because we identify with Him. And because we identify with Him in His sacrifice. We know full well. You might say we've been warned. We've been told that persecution will come. And it may very well be a time of testing in our life. But it will also be a time of great witness, great opportunity for us. And who knows what the cost will be. We do not know. Our suffering persecution, hardship is because of our devotion to Christ. Don't forget that. That's important to keep Christ first and foremost. It's possible for us as individuals, for us as a church, to do the right things for the wrong reason, much like the church that Joel talked about, as we've alluded to at least once before, the church at Ephesus, who stood strong on doctrine, 
who stood strong against the influences of that day who had worked their way in the church. They stood strong against that, the Nicolaitans. They did. And yet Christ had something against them because they had left their first love, which was the person of Jesus Christ. Now that's where our strength is. We are little Christ, I would remind you, as Christians. That's what that means. We're, we're little Christ. We are to mimic Him. We are to allow our lives to be according to His and not certainly not that of the world. Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians in chapter 3, beginning with verse 4, I won't quote the whole verse, but he simply says, you, plainly he says, but we were destined for this. We're destined for this persecution, this difficulty. And we can thank God right now that in our country and in our society, though it's changing, though it is becoming a, a bit more violent, people are more outspoken, and there is a more demeaning uh, context taken against Christians, even in our country, that we don't experience some of these tragic, tragic things, life-threatening things that people experience throughout the world. It should remind us also that that's God's blessing. That's more freedom for us in this life to speak and to share without putting ourselves at risk as much, our families, our occupations, and so forth. And we should take advantage of it. We should be bold in talking about our Christ and what He's done for us and the truth of His Word. We do that now. God, help us not to be in a day when we would long for that to be a reality in our life. And by that I mean, oh, if we, just, if we just had more latitude, if we just had more freedom to speak for Christ, and we have that now. We have that now. And we need to take advantage of it. I firmly believe we'll give, we'll give an account of it. <clears throat> a quote from Arthur Pink. Y'all read Arthur Pink from time to time? He says it's a, it is a strong proof of human depravity that men's curses and Christ's blessings should meet in the same person. That's what he said. Very wise in saying that. James would say something similar in chapter 5 because he talks about the tongue. And he says with that one tongue, he says we both bless God and we curse men. You'll find that thinking. Even in the church sometimes. God help us. But you might find it even in the church. It's just to say what we're capable of. You never know. You never know where the persecution will come from. Uh, I, I've heard MacArthur say before that you know, we set out to minister and to preach the word and to teach the truth of God's word. He initially saw himself as being put before the world and the world coming against him and, and organizations outside the church bombarding him and certainly that does happen. But he says that's not where the battle's been. The battle has been in the church. That's where the battle has been, inside the church. People who do not want to hear the unadulterated Word of God. Our own pastor now had served in a church years ago where he was told, you, you don't, don't preach on that. You, you don't need to preach on that. We don't preach on that here. Well, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm responsible to God for preaching, not to you, okay? 
That's a type of persecution. A type of persecution. I love to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 just for a moment to highlight some of this. We have Peter's admonition here and encouragement to a persecuted church. I shared last Sunday on our Bible reading from 1 Peter 4 and, and told the church, you know, Peter's writing here to a church that was experiencing increasing, increasing levels of persecution. He wrote to encourage them. But beginning in verse 13 there, this, this is right along what we're talking about. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And he's just saying there, nothing can happen to you when you're living and serving Christ that, that God himself does not allow to happen to you. Do you believe that? Nothing can happen. This is like Paul said. He knew he was going to be able to finish his race. Nothing could happen to him as long as he was yielded, yielded rather to the power of God in his life, as long as he was following the direction of God. Whatever happened to him was going to happen at the hand of God. And this was just a purpose in his heart to be part of the problem, not to be selfish, okay? To turn everything in his life over to accomplishing the mission that that Christ had laid upon his heart. And he was confident in 2 Timothy that he had done that. He had, he had fought a good fight. He had finished the course. And that's a definite article in the original language. The particular one that was set out for him. Not generally, but the specific one that the Lord had laid out for him. He knew that he had done that. No one, who is there to harm you, Peter says, if you prove zealous for what is good. It's talking about keeping our own attitudes, our own minds, our own purpose, our own mission, if you will, clear. We can have ultimate confidence in Christ that He will protect and provide for us. Verse 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, here you have it again, it's always clarified, you are blessed. And he adds, Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Because if you're suffering for being obedient to God, where else do you want to be? I mean, nothing can happen to you unless the Lord allows it to happen. Paul knew there would come a day. He writes about it. Saying, he knew there would come a day when his life would end. He says, I'm like a drink offering ready to be out. He could see the writing on the wall. But he knew he was right where he was supposed to be. That he had finished the work that He was given to do. And I want to submit to you this morning, in our life, we can't ask for any, anything more than that. We can't. Not in this life. He was faithful to do that. And then a, a directive from Peter. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now that's what we focus upon. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, remember, not losing that first love. Always begin, always rather, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And he's encouraging those folks amidst persecution to be ready still in their daily walk, in their daily conversations when they're taking advantage of the opportunities that God has provided in their daily life, as he says, to talk about that great hope that they have within themselves, to be ready. And when 
serving Christ and He is our Lord, not just our Savior as He says, but He is our Lord, we're ready to do that. And He reminds us that we're to do it with gentleness and reverence. Don't you know that was important for those people because they had seen the atrocities that the unbelieving world and the Romans had brought upon them. Seeing families suffer, seeing people killed, seeing people suffer because they identified with Christ. This is His encouragement to them to do it with gentleness and with reverence. Do we have that kind of strength when we've seen so many unjust atrocities occurring against people simply because of their faith in Christ to speak, as it were, the truth in love, as he says to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, speak the truth in love because there's nothing more powerful than the Word of God. Nothing. And it's up to us to live a life contradict what we claim to know and believe. We can do that. Verse 16, he says, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We do what we do. We live the life that we do. We respond to criticism and ridicule and some level of persecution, not from a selfish standpoint, uh, not because, as I say today, we've been dissed or something, uh, not that, but because of Christ. And he uses that word again, slander. Keep a good conscience. Know why you're doing what you Know you're not part of the problem. Know that you can't be accused. Because even when people are acting in a, in a bad way towards you, you remain civil. You remain loving in your tone, but you remain clear in giving them the Word of God and standing on the Word of God. This is what we do. Verse 17 says, For it is better if God should will, to, will it so that you suffer what is right than for doing what is wrong. We may be called upon to suffer. Our testimony may be in suffering. Again, as he told the church at Thessalonica, we were appointed unto was going to happen. <clears throat> and what this does for us today in this day and time, it, it allows us to consider this reality and to test our resolve right now. To test our resolve. How firm would we be in the face of a persecution? How firm would we be? How strong would we be? And then turn right around and thank God that we don't experience that right now to that level. And that we do have the freedom right now. That we do have opportunities now that maybe even in our lifetime will be shut down to us because of the direction in which the world is moving. I should say the direction in which America is moving. <clears throat> so God can get honor <clears throat> and glory out of this. We would like to think not. We would like to think no. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. We're going to finish well here. We are. Our expectations for peace and safety are going to be met. We have absolutely no assurance of that other than what we find in the Word of God and in the presence of Christ within us and with His church. And then lastly in verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the just, so that He might bring us to God 
having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And it's a reminder to us that we are to consider ourselves, as Paul says in Romans, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. We have that reality within us because of Christ. And we can look at that in a very practical way. We could go to Romans 7 and read that once again there, beginning in verse 14, and look at Paul's experience. But we have the strength of God within us through the Holy Spirit, through the presence of His Word. We have promises. So we're without excuse, you could say. We are to follow Him faithfully because of what He has accomplished on our behalf. You know, it always does that, does it not? What Christ has accomplished for us. Lastly, in verse 12, and I think we can finish up with verse 12 today and be done. Verse 12 of chapter 5 in Matthew. Rejoice, he says, be glad. Be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets for you. Now this is how we are to react to a lost world. This, this is how we are, as we would say, this is how we're to respond to this type of thing. We are to rejoice and be glad. Really? Well, we have examples of that throughout the New Testament, do we not? Primarily from, from Paul and his entourage as we see them imprisoned and, and singing and praising God and, and, and thinking in terms of the privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. The privilege to suffer for Him. Is that the way we We rejoice. That's that word in the original language, to be cheerful, uh, calmly or well off. To have that, it conveys that well-being, happy or joyful. Now I found this, uh, as I was looking at this in a couple of different uh, study books, uh, one had had actually translated this word a different way, a different word. They were probably looking at a different transcript or something. I didn't explore that and there's no need to. But it's a different word, but it means it's a it's just more intense word, a more intense word than the word glad that follows, to be sure. But it means to be overjoyed and extremely joyful. And this is a person, only a person who has a clear vision, a clear understanding about their actions, even though there are consequences for their actions, there might even be a level of persecution. They're confident in what they've done and what they've said, stood for Christ. They know experience the power of Christ within them, even as they're standing for Him. You know, Christ says, don't worry about what even in some of you tell me. I'll be there with you. It doesn't mean we're not to prepare, but, but it may find us one day. We may be thrust in a situation where we have to give an account about what we believe or what we said or some particular stance that we take because of the Word of God. He says, I'll, I'll give you the words to say. But in general, we are to rejoice and we are to be glad. And He says, because your reward in heaven is great. We rest upon the promises of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when we stand for Him. And that word glad is a it means to enjoy a state of happiness or well-being. To rejoice and glad, they're both, he says, in the, they are both in the present tense, which means it's a command of, and it's to be experienced as a continual state. 
In other words, we know what the Word of God says about this. We embrace that, and that empowers us. That strengthens us. And we carry that with us everywhere that we go. It's a part of who we are. That's why Peter could say, always be ready. This is a part of who we are. This is not something that we muster up. We can get, step away from that type of preparedness by focusing upon the things of the world, by embracing the things of the world, you know, by having a, a self-pity party over the situation wherein being executed, but he tells us that Christ is in control of those who witness for him. Nothing can happen when we're in the center of his will, serving him, standing for him, speaking the word as he has commanded us to do, and, and is equally as important, living out that word, he will be with us. We have that confidence. We have that surety. And he will not fail. He adds that such joy was outwardly expressed. Talk that we're used here. And you have an example of it like in Acts 2.6. That's the verse where, that's the verse about, uh, I see Acts 26. Um, <clears throat> talking about John the Baptist, right? Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted moreover my flesh. Will also Peter talking about from his first sermon, I'm sorry, Acts where he quotes from Psalm 16. And he's making reference to uh, an, an exhilaration that comes from his mouth. He, can't, he really can't find the words. That's what it means. He can't find the words. He's just so overcome with that presence. The same that the, the psalmist expressed in Psalm 16. Now, but I was talking, uh, looking at Luke 144, where he, <laughs> we're talking about John Baptist said, For behold, when the sound of Greeting, remember Elizabeth and, and Mary, the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb. And he says it was a, a word, this joy was often associated with running or skipping, okay? And I don't know about y'all, but I don't skip. I mean, do y'all skip? I don't skip. So. But that's, it's just like, you know, like uh, what would be a good picture, like when David went down the road dancing or something, okay? Joy, joy, that's the kind of attitude supposed to have when we're persecuted we in order for that to happen we have to have a real clear understanding and and certainly a very definite commitment in our faith we won't be able to exemplify that type of response <clears throat> to an unbelieving world to be joyful there's strength in that there's strength in that when the the attacks of the world are impotent against changing our attitude and the way that we feel or changing specifically our level of commitment to the Word of God. That speaks to the world. That speaks to the persecutor when they know that it doesn't have the type of impact upon us that they wanted it to have. It shows unequivocally that there's a, a, a deeper reality there within us that can't be shaken, can't be shaken. A quote from the Sermon on the Mount, he says, this is not a belated response to persecution, talking about the joy and the gladness, not a belated response that occurs after insults have ceased to sting or the nerves torn by the stripes on one's back have ceased to scream. This joy characterizes the disciple even as the insults are hurled and the scourge lacerates the flesh. 
And he's talking about somebody who knows that they know that they know. They know what they believe. They're confident in the Word of God and the stance that they've, they've taken. I wanted to read Acts chapter 5, verse 20. I'm not going to have time to do that. I'd like for you to, if you will, give me an assignment, make a, an opportunity today to read Acts chapter 5. Just start read through 24, and I'll give you a little preamble here. That's where the apostles were performing many different signs and wonders during that time, the early days of the church. There were a lot of people being added, a lot of numbers coming into the church, all kinds of miraculous things happening, tremendous healing going on at the hands of the apostles. And so what happens? The religious crowd becomes jealous. That's the word that's used in verse 17 there. So they have the apostles arrested, and you know the angel comes and unlocks the doors and at the same time instructs the apostles. They said, you are to go out and you are to continue to preach in the temple. You continue to preach, go to the temple and preach in the name of Jesus. So the apostles go. They go out as daybreak and they begin to preach. And then read what happens after that and read the response of Peter and the others who were following the voice of God. They were following Him. Lastly, and we'll finish up. Why do we do all this? Your reward in heaven is great. It's great. And when He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, again, theirs is up front, and it means only those, is what it's talking about, who serve Christ in this way. Your reward is great. The severity of the, of the penalty suffered for faithfulness to Jesus Christ will indeed, it will be offset in a very enormous way by the great joy that we will experience in heaven for all eternity. If we go back and look at these eight Beatitudes, as we call them, we know that the poor in spirit will one day reign That's what he says. That those who mourn will be comforted. That the humble will be rewarded. We have the promise of Christ on this. Uh, The spiritually hungry, those who hunger and thirst, they will be filled. These are promises. The merciful will indeed receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will always be known. Remember this distinction? They will always be known as the sons of God. This is what's to characterize our life. Remember the progression that we talked about in the Beatitudes? This is number seven. The peacemakers will always be known as the sons of God. They're to look at our lives, see that we're different, that we can't be shaken. No level of persecution can shake us. And then lastly, and today, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, persecuted because of Christ, as he says, persecuted because of me, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to us. That is our eternal abode. He adds, lastly, just to let people who are suffering know that they're in good company, He adds, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the company that you're in. 
And those prophets, just like we are today, they were guardians of righteousness. That's what our life is to represent and to typify. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own righteousness. And that we are to be modeled of faithfulness because of the truth of God's Word. Because what He has provided.